Howdy, welcome back to another episode of our weekly podcast. We know you've got a buffet of media to choose from each week. That's why we put a lot of effort into finding stories from the Bible that have relevant lessons for us today. I hope you enjoy. Today we're going to jump back into the story of John the Baptist. And what I'm hoping is, I don't know about you, but sometimes it can feel like life is just a daze. You work the weekly grind, you come to church, we do pretty much the same thing every week, and then we're back at it. It's just like this routine, there's routine, and sometimes it just feels like you're numb to anything real, and there's things happening in the world, and yeah, we've talked a lot about those things here, and I'll admit for me, sometimes it just, you get numb. And unfortunately, when you get in that state of numbness, maybe some of the, even the things we talk about here, they're in one ear and they're out the other. But I pray this morning as we talk about this, somehow, some way, the Lord is going to hear our prayer that He'll really help this cement in our minds. Because we're going to look at a story that ends with someone feeling abandoned by God. And the question is, Have you ever been in a situation like that? This often is a feeling when someone you dearly love, you've just gotten a phone call, they have died. You have cancer. You are no longer going to work here at this company. Whatever this terrible, drastic news, at some point in life, and this is going to, I think, have some even greater application, but I'm just hoping we will try and put ourselves into the moment of what if I was in that situation? How would I react? How would I respond? And so we're going to use our Bibles and we're going to jump into this story. So last week we started with John the Baptist. His whole life had been prepared for this moment. He started preaching. We even got to the point in the story where he hears Jesus, the one he'd baptized, the one he's told people is coming. Well, he's now having the crowds follow him. And the crowds are starting to diminish for John the Baptist. And yet everyone had heard of John the Baptist. He was a preacher, and he got your attention, and, and even Herod, the king, even he had been tempted to go out and listen in the wilderness to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist didn't tiptoe around things with the king. He said, hey, you're sleeping with your brother's wife. It's a sin, and you know it. And Herod was convicted. This man is from God. Who would dare speak to me like that? And he's right. And we're told that Herod is actually trying to think, how do I get out of this affair with my brother's wife? And that brother's wife, Herodias, I'm sure goes to Herod with something that he can't escape, and he arrests John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is now in prison. But everybody thinks, well, He's so popular, nothing could happen to him. This is just some political maneuver. Maybe the king got upset because he was talking about, you know, what's going on with his brother's wife and all this. And he is convicted. And if you've ever had conviction in your life, you can know how the king is feeling. Ah, this is wrong. But I'm trying to keep the peace. We're told that after John was in prison for hours and days and weeks, that he starts to get discouraged. And he starts to wonder, what, what is going on? 
Like I built my whole life for the kingdom of God and his disciples begin to come to him and they're asking him questions that they don't really encourage him. They even give him more doubt. And when we're told that John the Baptist here was looking for the God of Elijah, the God that answers by fire, the God that overturns kingdoms, and he hears Jesus is doing nothing like that. And so he's confused. And days turn into weeks, into months, and he starts to ask the question, has my whole life been in vain? Did I waste my entire life preparing for a moment and the moment's gone and I'm not even sure I was right? And a commentary describes, to the desert prophet, all this seemed a mystery beyond his fathoming. There were hours when the whispering of demons tortured him. The shadow of a terrible fear crept over him. Could it be that the long-hoped-for deliverer had not yet happened? You think about that. Your whole life, built for a moment, you start out of the gate, people are coming, this is it, and then everything seems to change, and you wonder, what just happened? We're told that John had been bitterly disappointed in the result of his mission. He had expected a great revival like the ones that parents told their children around the campfire for hundreds of years in Israel. And he is in a cell doing nothing. Desire of Ages describes it, for the success of this mission, his whole life had been sacrificed. And those whispers kept coming that it was all in vain. You wasted your whole life. You told people about someone, and he's not even the Messiah. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. We're going to pick up our story there. Luke chapter 7. So hopefully you've got the idea. John, he's in prison. Herod is kind enough to let his disciples come visit him. But they're not necessarily always encouraging. They're telling him, well, Jesus, man, he's, uh, he's getting lots of crowds, but he's not really overthrowing the Romans. And so Luke chapter 7, we're going to go to verse 18. And I'm in John, so I'm going to go to Luke. Luke chapter 7, verse 18. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. So they're talking to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus. So now John realizes, I'm discouraged. I thought I had it figured out. Clearly, I don't. And he sends these two friends of his to Jesus to ask a question. Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus knows these are John the Baptist's two disciples. Jesus knows all of the loaded question of what's taking place here. Verse 20, when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the coming one or do we look for another? And the commentary on this says Jesus looks at them and doesn't answer them. 
And verse 21 tells us, what did Jesus start to do? It sounds like they came in the beginning of the day. That very hour, he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits. And to many blind, he gave sight. He was healing the diseases, making people who couldn't speak where they could speak, people who couldn't hear where they can hear, the blind to see. And these two disciples are waiting and watching and waiting and watching, and that's what Jesus wanted them to do. In verse 22, Jesus answered and said to them, this is at the end of the day, go and tell John the things you have seen and heard that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And 23, and, and then this is what uh, Desire of Ages describes as a subtle rebuke that Jesus knew John would understand. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And so it says in verse 24, when the messengers of John had departed, Jesus begins to speak to the multitude. Now, here's what's interesting. So that, that message is going back to John the Baptist. And John understands clearly what Jesus is describing. Because Jesus, when he started his ministry, we read in Luke 4 and verse 18, Jesus begins to quote from the book of Isaiah. And the book of Isaiah is foretelling of how should we expect the Messiah to come? And what's he going to be all about? In Isaiah 61, which Jesus quotes at the very beginning of his ministry, almost as if to tell everybody, this is what I'm about. And remember, we've, we've talked about this before, that Israel was infected and overwhelmed with the spirits, the demons of ambition. Now, I want to tell you that every hour of every day of my week, the demon of ambition whispers in my ears. Sometimes I think the demon of ambition, ambition goes to get friends, and they whisper in my other ears. And I know some of you, I'm sure the demons of ambition scream and whisper in your ears throughout the week. And so you can imagine, this is screaming in one ear. They are looking for a Messiah. The government is corrupt. Our leaders are corrupt. When is God going to show up? And then Jesus comes along and says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Oh, here it comes. Because the Lord has anointed me, hopefully to overthrow governments, to preach good tidings to the poor. Wait a second. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Oh, no. To proclaim the liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And John starts to hear in that subtle rebuke of Jesus, I was mistaken on how this was going to happen. Because he thought like Elijah thought. God answers in big, bold, thunderous ways. God is in the lightning. God is in the storm. This week, 
you were in and around all this weather we were in here, I went outside and I thought, that is a loud sound. I don't know what a tornado sounds like, and maybe that's just rumbling thunder. But there is something awe-inspiring about when nature cannot be checked. And Elijah and John the Baptist and all of Israel expected the God of thunder, the God of lightning, the God who is loud and in control and overthrows things. And yet, like the lesson of Elijah, we're told John the Baptist gets the lesson in that dark prison cell. God is not in the wind. He's not in the fire and he's not in the earthquake. He's in that still, small voice. And John realizes, I was mistaken. It's not going to happen like I thought it was going to happen. And I'm okay with that. And we read in Luke, after, after those disciples leave, and it's interesting Jesus doesn't say this in front of them. That was a, that was a lesson that jumped out to me this week. That Jesus waits until those two disciples leave, perhaps so that pride doesn't overwhelm John and he gets lost in the end, which would be terrible. But they leave, and then Jesus says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? As if to tell everybody, tell me your thoughts of this guy, John, who's now in a prison cell. And he says, what did you go out to see, a prophet? And then Jesus says, yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Jesus says, This John the Baptist is the greatest of all who have foretold of me because he got to see me in person. And then he goes on to say, But I say unto you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. And you go back through all of biblical history and you say, Wow. But then Jesus says, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And this idea of greatness, you can imagine, especially men, we usually just chase, how do I make a difference in the world? How do I leave my mark? That's where that demon of ambition knows where we're at. And you can imagine John the Baptist is wondering that, did I leave any mark? Will anyone even remember my name? Will my parents think I'm a failure? Am I lost? Was I deceived? And there's some amazing commentary on it. It says, in the estimation of heaven, what is it that constitutes greatness? Not that which the world accounts greatness, not wealth or rank or noble descent or intellectual gifts in themselves considered. And listen to this. If intellectual greatness, apart from any higher consideration, is worthy of honor, then our homage is due to Satan. But aside from all the joy that John found in his mission, his life had been one of sorrow, and that's kind of a tragic thing. His voice had seldom been heard except in the wilderness. His life was a lonely one. He was not permitted to see the result of his own labors. It was not his privilege to be with Christ and to witness the manifestation of divine power attending that great 
greater light. And so John is in prison and he hears these things and he's at peace. He knows this is the Messiah. And this night, Herod has a birthday. Herod is still wrestling with conviction, hoping some way I got to get out of this thing. And on his birthday, they break out the alcohol. And, and what I like to say about alcohol is I know no one's life who's been made better by alcohol. Such a big business, such a hot thing. We celebrate it, we promote it, we, nobody's life has been made better by alcohol. So the alcohol is flowing, the music is all around, everybody's there for Herod's birthday, and Herodias has an idea. I am sick and tired of Herod feeling like we're living in sin. So Herodias has an idea. She goes to her daughter. She says to her daughter, I think it's Salome, she says to her daughter, here's what you're going to do. And we're told this young daughter was stunning. Go in before the king and dance. And I mean dance. And she goes in and she begins to dance. And Herod is so drunk and he's so enamored by this moment, he says, anything you want, up to half of the kingdom. What do you want? And so she innocently goes to her mother. What do I want? And her mother says, you want the head of John the Baptist on a plate. And she is shocked to hear this from her mother. We're told she had no idea how much her mother hated John the Baptist. And she goes back and she tells Herod this and Herod is shocked. And he, somehow with pride, we read it in all these stories of Scripture, kings feel like, well, I can't back down from my word. That would look weak. And we're told yet if one person in that room had spoken up, you sure we want to kill John the Baptist? That Herod would have stood at his defense and said, absolutely not. Yet every single person was quiet. And I think that goes to the world we live in today. Most people are cowards. They're afraid of what somebody's going to think of them. When we're called to just stand for the right, though everybody else is against us. And Herod, like a coward, says, finally after he's humming and hawing and trying to figure a way around this, Fine, do it. And something I learned about this is when they bring up John the Baptist's head, Herodias begins to hurl curses at him after his death. You realize the hatred she had for John the Baptist. And he had hoped, Herod had hoped, okay, maybe now I won't have conviction. I've done a wrong thing. I've killed a man of God. Yet it got worse and worse and worse because now he can't escape it. He actually thinks Jesus is John the Baptist brought up from the dead, and now he's in real big trouble. And you wonder, well, what in the world happened here? Why, why would God allow such a terrible thing to happen? And if this was our only story and it ended when our life ends, this earth, that's a terrible story. But, but this book seems to paint something with a longer vision than the one we can often see. Because John had come in the spirit of Elijah. He had done what his life work was all about. 
And he had felt so strongly that before God comes into someone's heart, sometimes you've got to clear the way. There's just habits and things you're doing that just keep Jesus out. You keep the door locked. You put furniture behind the door. You make sure, Jesus, I don't have time right now because I really like this sin. And yet Herod had felt that conviction. Others had felt that conviction. In fact, in Deuteronomy, we're kind of told, what is it, what's it feel like when you feel conviction and you fight it? And it describes it something like this. The sole of your foot won't have a resting place. Your heart will tremble all the time. Failing eyes, the anguish of your soul, your life shall hang in doubt before you. You shall fear day and night and have no assurance of life. When you're fighting with conviction, this is the feelings that are being described. In the morning, you shall say, man, I wish it were evening. At the evening, you shall say, oh, that it were morning because of the fear which terrifies your heart and because of the sight which your eyes see. And that was John's mission. I got to somehow tell people things that they wrestle with those emotions in their life. And if you've ever wrestled with those emotions, you would do anything to run from them, yet you can't escape. I know this is wrong. I like it. In fact, I love it. And I think Jesus doesn't love it. What do you do? And I think in that moment, you go straight to Jesus and you tell him, I love this sin. For some reason, I'm feeling awkward about it. You have to help me in ways I don't fully understand. We're told about John the Baptist that describes it in Desire of Ages. All who follow Christ will wear the crown of sacrifice. I just thought that's a beautiful statement. They'll wear the crown of sacrifice. They will surely be misunderstood by selfish people. Selfish people will tell you you're the selfish one. The sins they're guilty of, they'll accuse you of. That's kind of what it's done in the world around us, right? It is this principle of self-sacrifice that Lucifer's kingdom was established to destroy. And I think it's interesting to me, this idea of self-sacrifice. Often in religious circles, maybe even, or maybe especially in Adventist circles, we're convicted on something, and we go to others and we tell them, you need to be convicted on this. I'm convicted on this. You need to sacrifice. You need to get that out of your life. And somehow, we've missed this idea the kingdom of heaven is not built on force or imposing on others your convictions and beliefs. It's actually built on self-sacrifice. That's why we love these stories uh, like Undercover Boss. Have you ever watched Undercover Boss? We love these stories of, of old tales of the king disguises himself or the queen as a poor person and does these things and no one knows it. And then the greatest example ever is Jesus, with all the power in the universe, lays it all down to become the one that can be destroyed and killed by his own creation. 
That is the definition of self-sacrifice. You don't have to do it, but for some reason you choose to do this. And that spirit is, is one we have to wrestle with. It says, The childhood, youth, and manhood of John had been characterized by firmness and moral power. When his voice was heard in the wilderness saying, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. We're told Satan feared for the safety of his kingdom. You think about that. John the Baptist preaching scared the devil to death. I just can't imagine. That is some preaching. And that's why it got everybody's attention, even the Lucifer's. Though no miraculous deliverance was granted to John, he was not forsaken. He had always, this is beautiful, he had always the companionship of heavenly angels who opened to him the prophecies concerning Christ and the precious promises of Scripture. We, we could say prophetically that there are moments ahead that some Christians believe, maybe many of us in this room, of darker days ahead before there's brighter days ahead. And the hardest thing we could possibly do, this is where the great disconnect comes, well, everything seems pretty okay right now. I mean, I don't think I'll ever be in a dungeon cell. You can imagine as John was in that wilderness with the sunshine of the desert and everything just beautiful, he probably wasn't thinking, you know, one day soon I'm going to be in a dark, moldy, wet dungeon cell. And many of us probably don't think that either. Well, there's no way they'd put me in there, not in, not in the great country that I live in. And I just want you to imagine with me for a second that something you've done, you stood for, that you believe was right, and others are telling you, no, that's wrong, and we're actually going to lock you up for that. Let's hold on to this. Listen to this. God never leads his children otherwise than they would choose to be led. If they could see the end from the beginning and discern the glory of the purpose which they are fulfilling as co-workers with him. Philippians 1.29 says, Unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but then this is the greater one, but also to suffer for his sake. If you're going through trials in life, you should know Jesus walks with me through trials. In fact, I thought to myself as I was studying this week, am I going through enough trials in life? Am I avoiding trials? I think there's ways in which we can do that. And yet somehow says, of all the gifts that heaven can bestow upon men, fellowship with Christ in his sufferings is the most weighty trust and the highest honor. When you're going through hell is the time you can know heaven is smiling upon me. Work is absolute chaos. I can't believe I'm here, Lord. I have asked you to lead me, and what in the world have you done with me? Did you forget about me? This diagnosis of health. Lord, are, are you serious right now? 
Did you forget about me? We're told in those moments is when heaven is closest to us. And if there's a moment, and actually, you know, my father-in-law tells me his story about they're in seminary in Cuba to be Adventist missionaries and pastors, and then Castro's folks come in and take, not all of them, but no, psychologically, you really want to break people down, take half of them, and take them to a concentration camp, and tell them what they're going to do to violate their beliefs of their Sabbath. And Ignacio tells me about telling this officer, no, I'm not. And he says, oh, really? And he cocks his gun and puts it in his Ignacio's mouth. Now are you going to do it? And I love how Ignacio describes it. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. And lives in this concentration camp. And sometimes I think, oh, Lord, would I be ready for this in the future? When I'm like, there are people in this moment, in the world we live in. We're in such a moment of privilege, if we really think about it. No matter who's here today, we're so blessed. And my hope is that we get to the point, if we were to be in a dungeon like John the Baptist, we can say, Lord, I held nothing back. I stood for what was right. I did what was right. And I have a clear conscience that I did all that you showed me to do. Because I bet the greatest remorse John would have had is, I probably should have said that thing. I I shouldn't have been so scared to do what was right. But he had that clear conscience. And we can have that conscience like John, where every day as we ask the Lord, Lord, do for me what I can't do for myself. Help me to stand for the right. As these temptations of ambition and, and all these things around me, help me to rely that you are a God that doesn't let people down. If we can hold on to that, God will never leave us, He'll never forsake us, and He'll encourage us when we can't see anything good around us. That's my prayer. Thank you so much for listening. We record these messages each week at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Adairsville. And if you're ever in the area, we'd love to see you. Stop in and say hi and enjoy some good Southern food with us. We'll see you next week.